when Dick and I started talking about when he was going to come here to share, we had talked about one other Sunday. And here's how God works. We couldn't do it that Sunday. Um, He had spread himself too thin. And uh, he had to be cooking uh, that particular Sunday for a breakfast, wasn't it? Or Anyway, he had to be cooking. Um, and so we decided on today. And at that time, I wasn't even thinking about how today would really be a good day because the nature of my message today is that it's one of those that I could shorten it or lengthen it. Uh, the, that part was very flexible because we're doing an introductory message to the book of Amos and a lot of Amos gets repeated so a lot of what I was going to share today I can hold to to share next week as we repeat some of these same themes because Amos is basically divided into three sections and each of those sections keep coming back to the same thing Uh, So it worked out really good in terms of where we were at. Um, Probably Amos was the earliest of the minor prophets. The prophets we know of as the minor prophets. Um, Writing somewhere around the 8th century B.C., same time as Hosea and Isaiah and, and Micah. In fact, when we talk about Hosea, I mean Amos, uh, we actually have the most precise introduction of any of the minor prophets. Uh, And and that's a a benefit because we can really begin to pinpoint in with Amos in terms of where he was going, what was going on at that time. And so as we begin, and today I just want to talk about, my message is titled, Oracles. Thus says the Lord. That's what oracles means. Words, divine words from God. And today's message is just simply titled regarding sin and judgment. And we're going to be looking at chapters 1 and 2 in this message. Uh, But Amos begins in terms of who Amos is by telling us right up front. The first verse says, The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Now, think about this. He begins by saying, The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds, He doesn't identify himself as a prophet. In fact, if you go later in the book, uh, back to the 7th chapter of Amos, again, there he says in verse 14 of chapter 7, Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, not a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. Now, I'll tell you why I am stressing this so much. 
One of the things that we need to understand now as much as at any time in my life, and for some of you I'm old, for most of you I'm not. I don't consider 67 old anymore. I used to. But I don't anymore. But in my 67 years, someone who was very observant of what was taking place, I have never been a part of a time where it was any more important for the people of God, not the clergy, not the ministers, not the professional theologians, but for the people of God, to hear the word of the Lord and share it with their friends and neighbors. People need to know what it is that is bringing us hope in tough times. And they need to hear it from somebody that can say, hey, I'm not the paid preacher. My daddy wasn't a preacher. Now, mine was. And you know what? I fought it. I didn't want to be a preacher. I don't know how many times I heard the story from my mom and dad saying, we had two girls. And when your mama got pregnant with you, or when I got pregnant with you, we prayed to God, just like Hannah in the Old Testament, that God would give us a son and we dedicate him to you. And we did. We went with you as a baby to the church and we dedicated. I went to college to be a medical doctor. And all of a sudden, the love of my life just wasn't there anymore. Football wasn't fun at college. And so I walked away from a full-ride scholarship and called my dad and I said, call Lincoln and see if I can still get in. Because I know if I come home, I'll probably not get back to college. And I ended up going straight from Crawfordsville to Lincoln, Illinois. And every semester for the first year and a half, three times, I told my classmates, goodbye, I won't be back after this semester. I'm going back and going to medical school. And I ended up staying. And then later in my life, after going through trauma and tragedy, uh, I got out of ministry. And all of a sudden, at a convention, at a church convention that I went to to see my mom and dad to have lunch because it was in Louisville, Kentucky that year, Lynn Laughlin from Lincoln saw me and said, hey, let's have lunch. And he joined mom and dad and I and he looked at me eyeball and eyeball across the table and he said, why aren't you in ministry? And I started the path back. But I, with Amos, I could have said, I'm no preacher. I don't want to be a preacher. I'm just a policeman at that time. But I kept having this nagging call that I wasn't where I needed to be. And notice how Amos begins. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, the words which he saw. It's not talking about seeing the shepherds. 
It's talking about there were words that he saw when he was a shepherd. Those words that Amos uses as he's writing, or whoever is introducing the words of Amos as the text moves on, are words that indicate a divine message, a vision. Amos had had a vision, which he explains later, that he he couldn't turn away from. He was called to go back and speak to the people of Israel. Now the setting is also given to us here. We're talking about the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Jeroboam was the first king of Israel when the nation divided after Solomon. And the people, Amos wasn't ready for the nation to be divided. He still felt like these were God's people. He wasn't going to go into the theological belief that every separate nation had its own God. No, he believed that God was the God of all the world. And we're talking about a good king... Uzziah, who followed the way of his fathers in Judah, but we're also talking about a very wicked king in Jeroboam, the son of Joash, who didn't walk in the ways of his fathers. And we're talking about the time frame from right around 792-793 B.C. to about 740 B.C. is when those two kings were reigning. But we even notice have a more precise identification. It's two years before the earthquake. Now, let me ask you this. If I just simply said, well, you know, that was before September the 11th. Is there anybody here who would not know precisely what I was talking about? No, we would all know. And Amos didn't have to go into detail. In 760 B.C., there was a horrible earthquake that affected that whole area. And so two years before the earthquake means that he's writing and communicating to us at about 762 B.C. And what is it that he wants us to hear? Well, let's read on. Verse 2 says, And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters His voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. He starts out by giving us the theme of the of the book. He is called to communicate to these people of Israel. He said that up above. It's about concerning Israel, not Judah, the divided northern nation. He is to communicate to them the displeasure that God has. And it's going to be a really tough word that he brings. Because when he says there, the Lord roars, 
That's the, that's the vision of a, the image of a lion. You see, his task is to proclaim those words of his vision, go prophesy to my people Israel, and he's to do it as an intruder, an outsider. Oh, you're from the southern kingdom. Why don't you go back home, son? We got our own priests up here now. We have our own places of worship. We don't even go to the temple in Jerusalem anymore. You just head on back home. But no, his task was to even speak to the northern divided part of the kingdom. Now I want to give you a flavor for the rest of Amos, but I don't want to read all of chapters 1 and 2. So so let me just share with you what he says concerning his own area, Judah. It comes up in Amos chapter 2, verses 4 to 5. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they've rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept His statutes, but their lies have led them astray those after which their fathers walked. So I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. Now, he doesn't start right out with this passage. This is in chapter 2. In chapter 1, he starts out again by sharing the fact that God is roaring. He's roaring like a lion. And in that part of the world, the lion was a majestic and regal predator. The shepherds had to be on guard for the lions. David, in fact, talks about, when he talks about his ability to go against Goliath, he says to King Saul, well, one time I took care of a lion that attacked the sheep. And now, God is roaring. But it's a corollary of His love. I am one who wants to continually to portray that God is a God of love. That He's a God who is merciful. But in doing that, I also have to portray that a part of God's love is justice. Not just mercy. I have seven kids. I'm not one of those who (coughs) sits down with a notebook paper and says, oh honey, we need to go get another five cent wood nickel and add it to the present of this one because their present isn't quite as expensive as the other one. I actually know a lady who did that kind of thing. But a part of being a loving father is that if one of my children is going astray, it's incumbent upon me to be able to very strongly verse out loud to vocalize a strong, loving no. I had to do that, and it wasn't easy. I had to say to one of my sons, when he was not living by the rules of the house, when he was not doing his share of what should have been done. I had to say to him when he said, well, I'm 18 now, I can do whatever I want. 
And I had to say to him, yes, you're 18, you can do whatever you want, but right now, in order to do that, you need to get a different address after your name. And he did, and he hasn't lived with us since. We love him. We don't want him to go without. We do whatever we can to make sure that he's not doing without. But we still try to do that even in a way that he doesn't just take advantage, that he doesn't use us, that he begins to develop some kind of responsibility. And this idea of God roaring at what is wrong, you find it again in Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 30. You therefore, talking to Jeremiah, shall prophesy against all these words and say to them, The Lord will roar from on high and from His holy habitation utter His voice. He will roar mightily against His fold and shout like those who tread grapes against all the inhabitants of the earth. God is not going to sit silently while we choose to rebelliously do whatever we want to do. That wouldn't even be a loving God. It wouldn't be a loving Father. So Amos begins with this portrait to the people that God is roaring. Well, what's He roaring about? Well, He's roaring about the fact that there are people who have fallen prey. And he goes through a litany of eight nations. Six of them who are foreign nations. Number seven being Judah that we read. And number eight being Israel. Eight different people groups. And three of those, the first three, were not only foreign, but they were actually mostly hostile. Damascus or Aram, Gaza or Philistia, Tyre or Phoenicia, depending on what translation you have. Those three countries were hostile enemies. But then there were those that were somewhat related. Edom and Ammon and Moab. And then there was the sister nation, Judah. And each of these verse 7, Amos parallels the structure of what he says. He begins with the messenger formula. Thus says the Lord. He quickly moves to this mathematical expression. Three, three, four things and three, or three things, I mean three transgressions and for four. And then he he continues by saying, I'm not going to back down. There is a surety of punishment. It's irrevocable. And then he gives the transgressions for each of them. For instance, for Damascus, it was cruelty, wartime uh, torture. They're going to They threshed Gilead with threshing sleds of iron. History says that they were actually taking those sleds and running right over the bodies of the people, of their their, uh, prisoners. Wartime crimes. For Gaza, it was slave trade. For Tyre, it was being agents of slave trade in spite of the fact that they had a covenant. 
for uh, Edom. It was determined and revengeful lack of forgiveness. He pursued his brother with a sword and cast off all pity. The Ammonites, it was cruelty based on greed. For Moab, it was desecration of the dead. They burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. The thrust of all eight speeches is in fact to introduce and justify the concept that there is such a thing as divine punishment. And I would be remiss if I did not say to each one of us, when you violate God's Word, when you live in a way that's not in accord with this book, you are in fact going to suffer. It might be emotional. It might be the loss of friends. It might be family turning against you. But when we do not honor God's laws and His statutes, we are like a fish out of water. We're not doing what we were created to do. We're not being who we were created to be. And the the category of the sins are sins against humanity. Excessive cruelty, slave trade, desecration of the dead. But then... And and I'm sure that these Israelites were saying, yeah, yeah, that's what those people did. Yeah, yeah, that's what he did. And even when it got to Judah, yeah, that's why we pulled away from them. That's why we made a new nation. Probably clapping their hands when God said, I'm not going to revoke the punishment. I'm going to bring fire. And fire was and is a symbol of judgment throughout the Bible. But then, the main course is Israel. That God is also going to judge you all. And I love the way this section is set up. Because from chapter 2, verse uh, 6, to the end of the chapter, we have seven sins listed we have seven acts of God on their behalf and we have seven results of the coming punishment it's going to be complete isn't that what we know the number seven to be the whole number the complete number I mean when it comes to their sins the others were sins against humanity against those people but when it comes to Israel it was sins against their own people They were selling the righteous. That's what it says there in in verse uh, 6. They sell the righteous for silver. They're selling the needle, the needy, just for a pair of sandals. They're trampling on the heads of the poor. They're denying justice. They're violating God's name morally. They're misusing garments that were taken in pledge. Jesus even said, hey, if you have a garment that you took in pledge, you make sure you give that back before night so that that person won't be cold. They were violating and misusing those garments taken in pledge. They were drinking the wine that was collected as fines from the temple. 
And then we're given seven ways in which God was directly involved with them in history. Verses 9-11. to But then, He ends the chapter by saying, I love this phrase, verse 13, Behold, I will press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. It's going to be a cart-crushing experience. And they all knew about that. They were an agricultural country. They had seen those carts loaded down, going around in circles, crushing the grain down so that it could be used as flour. And they probably had been close by and felt the rumble of that cart, that heavy cart as it moved across that uneven ground, kind of like an earthquake. And notice what he says. Verse 14, no one's going to be fast enough to escape. No one's going to be strong enough to oppose it. No warrior's going to survive. No weapon, not even the archers, are going to be able to oppose God's army. Verse 15, the fastest are going to be caught. Those on horseback won't be saved. And even verse 16, the bravest, the mighty in heart, are going to be stripped of their garments. Israel's devastation would be extensive. Not war crimes, as with the others, but because of their injustice, their lack of mercy during peacetime, during prosperity. And not against other nations, but oppressing their own people. I mean, do I have to bring this home? Do I have to say Amos applies to us as a nation today? Because it does. It does. And so why shouldn't chapter 2 end with why they can't even flee away naked in that day? We've been talking about the day of the Lord. Last month we talked about it through Hosea. But it was probably Amos who was the first to speak of the day of the Lord. And in fact, the people in Amos we're going to see were actually talking about the day of the Lord in a positive way. And that's why Amos has to come back and say, oh no, it's not just going to be a positive way. For those of you that aren't living according to God's Word, it's going to be a day of judgment. You know, I was never afraid of hearing my mom say, hey, your dad's going to be home in a couple of hours and we're going to have supper. Until my mom changed her tone and my mom said, you wait till your father gets home. All of a sudden, the time of my dad's return moved from a positive experience to a very threatening worrisome experience. And I'm going to tell you there are too many people today living like the people of Israel who are saying, well, we don't need to worry about that. We're doing okay. And one of the things we're going to come to and see is that they were basing their security on a false sense of being religious, of being holy, of living the right way. But they were living in violation of God's Word. And Amos wants to show us that God is sovereign. That God is tolerant for three, 
even for four, but only to a point. And that God's judgment is impartial. So, uh, let me close with this. The day of the Lord. That time when God will act to carry out His plan. I think it's appropriate that He ends within that day. Because it links chapters 1 and 2 with what's going to come in the rest of the book. And that we need to recognize the significance of the day of the Lord. Because already in Amos He has said, all nations are accountable when they oppress, when they dehumanize. And how much more dehumanizing can we be as a nation when we don't even consider the unborn life of a child as worthy of of living with abortion? And how much more dehumanizing can we be when euthanasia is talked about and considered more and more? I mean, come on. There were a lot of people very much in support of Dr. Kevorkian, remember? The doctor of death who was giving people injections? Induced? Assisted? Suicide? Dehumanizing people? When we take away the rights of the helpless, when we exploit, when we abuse our fellow human beings. So why not us? Let's pray.